0: reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your great love toward us through Jesus to the praise of his glory. Thank you for this prayer that The Apostle Paul prayed a couple thousand years ago. We pray that it would be fulfilled among us, that you would grant that our eyes would be open and that we would know more and more the depth of your love and the power that you have given us in your spirit. We pray that you would fill Tom with your spirit this morning as he tells us your words, we pray that you would work in our hearts uh, to bear fruit for your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.
1: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Over the last four Sundays leading up to this one, we've been camping out in just 12 verses, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. And the reason that we stayed so long in that wonderful run-on sentence is because in it, Paul lays out for us the outrageous wealth that has been given to us in and through and because of our union with Jesus Christ for all who have placed their faith in him alone. The Holy Spirit drove the Apostle Paul to write that amazing sentence because God intends for his children, all of his children, to know the extravagance of the the blessings that he has lavished upon us freely in Christ. He wants us to know whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. He doesn't want us to guess. He doesn't want us to wonder. He doesn't want us to doubt. He wants us to know. (laughs) Not merely so that we will be sure that it is indeed well with our souls, but so that we will live the Christian life out of the fullness of all that actually belongs to us in Jesus Christ instead of from a place of emptiness. The confidence that all of these glorious riches are truly yours in Jesus, that confidence is it is the ground, it is the very foundation of every good work that God saved you and saved us to do during the time that remains to us on this earth. That is why the first three chapters of Ephesians come before the last three chapters of Ephesians. The last three are about walking in a manner worthy of our extraordinarily high calling in Christ, putting Jesus on in practice so that we may show Jesus off to one another and to lost men and women and children. But that worthy walk absolutely depends on us knowing, believing, and counting as true these beautiful gifts that God has emphatically declared to be ours. But beloved, seeing these promises with our physical eyes and hearing them with our physical ears is not enough. That kind of seeing and hearing alone will not make us live well for Christ. The verses that we're considering this morning in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 reveal to us that there's something more that has to happen. The first half was a prayer of praise to God, and the half of the chapter we're going to look at this morning is a prayer of request to God. And Paul's reason for making this request of God becomes apparent in the first few verses of the passage. Those to whom Paul was writing were already in Christ. God had already brought them to faith in Jesus. And because they belonged to Christ, they loved their fellow saints. Their faith was visible through their love for one another. And that doesn't mean there were no unbelievers mixed in in these churches in Asia Minor that received this letter. But Paul wasn't talking to the unbelievers. He was talking to those who knew God. But the problem that prompted this prayer is they didn't know God all that well. The Ephesians were a lot like the wayward son in the parable of the prodigal son. As he Hesitantly walked back to his father's house. The entire way home, he was practicing what he would say to convince his father to allow him to work and live as a lowly servant in that household, hoping that somehow he could convince his father. But as he approached the house, it didn't go the way he had planned. I'm sure he was, he was astonished to find that his father had been watching for him. His father ran out to greet him while he was still approaching the house. His father hugged him and welcomed him as his beloved son, and he lavished upon him all of the best that he had to offer. See, that young man clearly had not known his father all that well. Neither had his brother. The Ephesians' knowledge of their heavenly father was much like that young man's knowledge of his earthly father. They didn't really know what they had in him because they didn't really know him all that well. What we'll see just a little later in this letter makes it clear that many of the Gentile believers to whom Paul was writing still saw themselves as in Christ but kind of just barely in. They saw themselves more as allowed in than welcomed in. And of course there were legalistic Jews in their midst who claimed to be followers of Christ who were more than happy to feed that perception on the part of the Gentile believers that that they were second class stepchildren in the household of God. But Paul On behalf of God, one of these Gentile saints to know that they weren't just barely in Christ, they were as in as in gets, because that's the only way to be in Christ. He tells them in chapters 2 and 3 that they who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They were now fellow citizens with the saints, fellow heirs, fellow members of Christ's body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And they needed to know that. They could never live lives of confidence and power and gratitude and God-ordained authority on Christ's behalf, proclaiming and adorning the gospel, if they didn't really know that these unspeakable treasures actually belonged to them in Christ. But Paul knew that it was not enough for him to just tell them on God's behalf how wealthy they were in Christ. He knew that wasn't enough to cause them to stop thinking of themselves as paupers and to start thinking and living as sons and heirs of the living God. And the reason that that wasn't enough is the same reason that it wasn't enough for you to just hear the words of the Gospel on the day that God brought you out of the darkness. It takes more than hearing true words for you to truly hear. It takes more than seeing miraculous works for you to truly see. Paul knew that he could set the truth of God's character and of God's ways and of God's gracious gifts before these dear saints until there was no ink left for him to write another word and they would still see themselves as ill-equipped for the life to which they had been called unless unless God did what only God can do. Unless God made Himself known to them. Beloved Only God can make you know God. So Paul moves here in verses 15 to 23 from praising to asking. From praising God for the lavish heavenly gifts that he has given to all of his redeemed to asking in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of Him. This is not about getting more information about God. This is about knowing God. Intimate, personal knowledge of God Himself. Without that knowledge, everything that we know about God is pointless. Listen for just a moment as Peter... Tells us how it is that we come to lay hold of everything, everything that we actually need to live well for Jesus Christ. This is from 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature so that He may become in you, infused in you, that you will be infected marvelously with God Himself. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, according to that passage, how does God multiply grace and peace to us? By making Himself known to us. How does God grant to us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness? By giving us the true knowledge of Him. It's personal. But what does knowing God's precious and magnificent promises in verse 4 have to do with us knowing Him personally? Let's take that same question and bring it right back here to the passage at hand. And I'll show, I'll put, the, put it back up in a second, but if Paul's prayer here in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 is fundamentally for God to make Himself more fully, more personally, more intimately more transformingly known to us who belong to Christ, then why is it that the rest of Paul's prayer in verses 19-23 to goes right back to what God has done for us instead of focusing on what God is like? Beloved, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. We have created a false dichotomy. We have convinced ourselves, and I don't just mean at CBC... That if we speak too much or too often of the blessings of being in Christ, if we spend too much time thinking and talking about what God has done for us, we will somehow be distracted from truly knowing and worshiping God himself. But guys, that would make God complicit in distracting us from himself. Because there is a beautiful connection and interdependence throughout the entire Bible between these two things. Knowing what God has done, especially what He has done to save us, and knowing God. You cannot know what God is like if you don't know what He has done for you. This is a little aside, but when I was a baby Christian, I read three books by Francis Schaeffer. Genesis and space and time, the God who is there, He is there and He is not silent. Now those three books really go to this exact point. To know the God who intervenes in His creation, who is imminent in His creation, God's going to make sure that you know things that He has done. He's not the kind of God you just know sort of in an esoteric way. You cannot know what God is like if you don't know what He's done for you. And it goes the other direction as well. You will not rightly value what God has done for you if you do not see in those works what He's like. If you don't behold Him in and through His works. In Psalm 103, David begins by saying to his own soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Well, what's His name? That means his character, who he is and what he's like. And then without taking a breath, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then he spends the next 16 verses listing the gracious, redeeming works of God and history toward his people. You might think, wow, well, he kind of shortchanged the name part. No, he didn't, not at all. Because in that list of works he says the works, these works display God's loving kindness, his compassion, his righteousness, his sovereignty, his omniscient knowledge, in short, his name, who he is, and what he is like. In Psalm 136, and I didn't orchestrate this, guys, but in the responsive reading this morning, about four of the pass four of the lines of that were taken straight out of Psalm 136 that psalm was almost certainly a responsive psalm to be used the same way we used it this morning. In which the priest would read the first line and the third line and the fifth line and each of the odd-numbered lines and the congregation would read out loud together each of the even-numbered lines. And in Psalm 136, every single one of the even-numbered lines is exactly the same for His loving kindness is everlasting. That's one of the most foundational declarations in the whole Bible about God Himself, about His character. His steadfast covenant love is from eternity to eternity. And if you put together all of the odd-numbered lines of that psalm, you get a declaration of His character, followed by a declaration of His creative work, followed by a history of his redemptive acts to save his people. And the reason that those two things are juxtaposed over and over and over, who God is and what God has done, is because the two are inseparable. Guys, we say that real worship speaks about God himself, and doesn't talk a lot about what God has done for us and given to us, but the Lord's Supper—that is the focus of our worship every single Sunday—is a remembrance of both, because the two are inseparable. We need to stop being timid about celebrating what God has done for us, feeling like somehow that's selfish, that's godish. That is—that is a remembrance of who God is as He displays His character in all that He does. We know how wealthy we are by knowing Him. (laughs) Now listen, there's a wonderfully simple reason that knowing God and knowing what we have been given in God are inseparable. And that reason is because what we have been given in Christ is God. He's our treasure. He's our inheritance. He's our wealth. He is the end point of all things. He's the reason we exist. He is our life. We know how wealthy we are by knowing Him because He is our wealth. This is deeply personal. It is deeply relational. God Himself is our treasure. And so He makes us see with the eyes of our hearts how richly blessed we are by showing us Himself. His character, His ways, His works. And that's really important because that's the same way that other people will see God in us. By seeing His works in us. God is going to show Himself off through you toward other people who don't know him when they see his works manifested in you. The reason we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which is what the second half of this epistle will be about, is because that's a huge part of how God intends to use us to seek and save the lost, to advance his kingdom. So immediately after asking God to give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, Paul then points us right back to three facets of that mountain of blessings that God has lavished upon us in Christ that he talked about in the first half of the first chapter. He asked God to open our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our hearts, so that we will know three things. The hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. You notice that all three of those are His. Let's look briefly at each of them. First, the hope of His calling. What is God's calling? Well, guys, God has no obligations to anybody. So this is talking about His calling in terms of what He has called us to do and what He has called us to. We have been called out of sin and death and darkness to be sons of the Most High God right now and forever. And to live right now in keeping with that that glorious identity. And what is the hope of that calling? Paul Tripp defines biblical hope as confident expectation of a guaranteed result. I love that. Confident expectation of a guaranteed result. And the reason that the result is guaranteed is because the result has been promised to us by a God who can't lie and controls everything. What is that result that we confidently and eagerly expect? That hope? It is that we will indeed fully lay hold of all of the eternal riches that Paul told us about in verses 3 to 14. We will, we look forward with eager expectation to the day when our adoption as sons and heirs of God that was decreed before the foundation of all things is, will be fully realized. The day when sin and the curse will be put away from us and we will stand spotless and blameless in the presence of our great God and Savior forever together with each other, with all the saints. That is the hope of God's calling. And the writer of Hebrews says that hope is the anchor of our souls. Every day. What is God's inheritance in the saints? Well, we talked about this last time. It goes in both directions. His inheritance in the saints is the saints. His inheritance is us. And we looked at several passages that declare that. We also looked at several passages that declare that our inheritance is Him. He is our God, and we are His people. He will dwell with us and we with Him forever. And that's already happening through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it will happen in every conceivable definition, by every conceivable definition of those words. He will dwell with us and we with Him forever. That's the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. And beloved, that is wealth of the highest order. And because that inheritance is a packaged gift, we don't only inherit Him, we inherit each other forever. That means you guys are going to have to put up with me forever. <laughs> Finally, Paul prays that we may know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. This is the only one of the three gifts that Paul expands upon, and he really expands. <laughs> Verse 19 is marvelously redundant. There are four words in that one sentence that speak of God's power. The first refers to the ability of someone or something to produce a given effect. You have to have power to make something happen. It speaks of inherent ability to get things done. The second word has the connotation of active operation, of power at work, power actually getting things done. The third word introduces the element of sovereignty, power that proceeds from and manifests great authority. It is the power of kings. The fourth word refers simply to might or strength. It's like if, if I said to you, I have the strength to bench press 400 pounds. Of course, that would be a lie, but See, Paul is piling on here. He's making sure that we will not ever again be able to think of God's power toward us in small ways. And then he amplifies what he's just declared by moving from power as an attribute of God to power as an action of God. He says that this usward power of God is in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And this is really interesting. Paul used four words to describe the power of God toward us. Now he uses four words to describe the power of created beings in order that He may declare that by the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the the power of God absolutely overwhelms every power that has been granted to men and to angels and to Satan. God, by raising Christ up and sitting Him at His right hand, has established Christ's absolute and unrivaled authority over all of creation, both now and into eternity. And then, masterfully setting the stage for all that he's going to say in the rest of this letter about the church, which is a lot, (laughs) Paul declares that the power that seated Jesus at the right hand of God over every other power that exists has also established Jesus as head in every way over his body, the church. Do you ever think about the fact that God is already showing the world the absolute authority of Jesus over all creation by showing them his absolute authority over his church? That might make us rethink how important it is for us to joyfully submit to his way of doing things in his church. I want to spend the rest of the time that remains to us considering what all of this means for our prayers. This is huge, guys. This passage is a prayer. It is a request that Paul makes of God on our behalf. And what is it fundamentally that he's asking God to do? To make Himself known to us. How do we come to understand the things that exist in the mind of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, so that we will really, really know God? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, I've gone to this passage a lot lately, but it certainly bears repeating, I'm just going to read part of it. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12-16. to Now we have received, we believers, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. I'm in verse 13 now. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual with spiritual. The spiritual thoughts of God himself with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? That's a... Old Testament quote, and then he finishes, but we have the mind of Christ. How did we get it? How do we know the mind of God, the thoughts of God, the ways of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God? Just one way. God has to reveal Himself to us. He has to open Himself up for us to see and that's exactly what he does how his holy spirit dwelling within us revealing god to us through his word it's not a formula it's not a how-to book it's not even merely a way of life beloved it is life This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God calls us to come and meet with Him daily and often to sit at the feet of our great God and Savior and to listen to Him just as Mary did at the end of Luke chapter 10. He calls us to hear the gentle and loving rebuke of Jesus as He said to Mary's distracted sister, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered by so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And I love this. It's actually not an adjective. It's a noun. Only one thing is necessity. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. What is that one necessity? Necessity. It is for us to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to Him so that we may know Him. That we may more rightly and more truly know God as He reveals Himself to us through all that He has declared about Himself and through all that He has done. And the only unadulterated, untainted source for knowing those things is the living and active Word of God, empowered and illumined, by the Holy Spirit who wrote it, who happens to dwell in every child of God. How often do you have a book where you get to carry the author around with you? Well, there's no other book like this one. And there is no other there is no other person like the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Uh, this reality is astonishing. Go back and read John 4 and John... 16 that we looked at when we were in that gospel at the work of the spirit in the life of every believer it's amazing beloved come to the word of the lord to meet the lord of the word if you've been picking up your bible for any other purpose than that stop it prophets and apostles didn't die to bring us this treasure so we could win arguments They laid down their lives so we would know the living God. Come, sit at His feet and listen. And as you listen to Him and as you behold Him, pray back to Him what He reveals to you through His Word. I've said many times that the most transforming prayers in my life have been those in which I've simply prayed back to God the things that He has revealed in His incomparable Word. Prayers in which I have simply confessed to Him as true that He is all that His Word says that He is. That He's done all that His Word says that He has done and that He will do all that His Word says He will do. The tears of greatest remorse and contrition and repentance and joy and peace and praise that I have ever cried have flowed as I've simply declared back to God that which He declares to be true of Himself. I have a long way to go to do that well and faithfully, and some of you here leave me in the dust. But that is a glorious task. Brothers and sisters, if you walk away with this morning with nothing other than this, I pray that this next part will stick. The glorious, personal, transforming knowledge of God comes to us only as God makes himself known in the hearts of His children, and in the heart of His church. And you know what that means? That means we are utterly dependent. That means that we cannot know Him unless He makes Himself known. We are utterly dependent. And what do utterly dependent people do? They depend utterly. Beloved, God is Devoted to teaching us to live dependent lives. And that means that He might withhold something that He fully intends to give to us until we depend on Him to give it. That isn't us manipulating God, it's just the opposite. It's God rewiring us. In Isaiah 55, God declared to His people, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If God is so entirely other than we are, how can we possibly come to personally know Him? I can't overstate this next part, so I'll just go for it. Beloved, our prayers need... To look a lot more like this. Like this prayer in Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23. And like the prayer in Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 21. And like the prayers that you find all over the epistles. Our prayers for ourselves and for each other. And for the body of Christ at CBC. And for the body of Christ all over the world. Need to look like this. All of our requests, all of our requests for God's temporary provision for our temporary needs during our temporary mortal lives here under the curse, all of our requests for food and clothing and shelter and jobs and physical healing and relief from stressful circumstances, those requests are not supposed to dominate our prayer lives. These are. The things that Paul asked God to make the saints know, right here, these things should dominate our prayers. It doesn't mean the other things aren't to be asked for. Jesus said they are. But right after he said, give us this day our daily bread, he spent another half of the chapter saying God does that for birds and weeds. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all that other will be added to you. It's about priorities. It's about focus. It's about emphasis. If you're like a great many of the believers I know, including myself, for most of my Christian life, this calls for a pretty big redo of your priorities and focus in your prayer life. Not a small change, a big change. And because we slide so easily right back into old habits, that redo will require diligence and perseverance if your prayers are overflowing with requests for temporary exemptions from the curse for you and for the people that you love, but there is little or no time spent in those prayers talking to God about Him, about His character, His ways, His works, what He has done, especially what He has done to save you and me, and what he is going to do to finish out everything that he accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. If there's little or no time in your prayers for those things, then your prayers need some pretty radical reconstruction. For me, this has been a big thing. If you're spending a good bit of time in God's Word, reading, studying, even meditating on the things that God reveals, to His people in this incomparable revelation of Himself, but you don't sense a genuine nearness to God, a personal and pervasive knowledge of God Himself that actually drives the way you live, that makes you a partaker of the divine nature. You might want to ask yourself this question. Am I depending on God to make Himself known to me, or am I depending on me to make God known to me? The most indispensable way that you exercise and nurture genuine dependence on God to reveal Himself to you is through prayer. Ask Him to make Himself known to you more fully day by day. He intends to teach you to do that. Ask Him for the same kinds of wonderful things for which Paul asks right here. I want to close by reading you a true and very personal story from Harry Ironside's commentary on this very passage of Ephesians. And, of course, I found the book in our library. (laughs) It was referenced in James Montgomery Boyce's commentary, but I wanted to see what Ironside said himself, and it was right there. This little story makes the beautiful and indispensable connection between, on the one hand, beholding God and hearing from God in His Word, which... We do a pretty good job of promoting here at CBC. And on the other hand, praying to God, asking Him to reveal Himself through that beholding and hearing, and especially in the midst of that beholding and hearing. Listen to this. It's beautiful. I remember years ago, while my dear mother was still living, I went home to visit the family, and I found there a man of God from the north of Ireland. I was a young Christian at the time engaged in gospel work. He was a much older man and invalid, dying of what we then called quick consumption. And Ironside's referring to fast progressing, rapidly progressing tuberculosis. He says, I can remember how my heart was touched as I looked down upon his thin, worn face upon which I could see the peace of heaven clearly manifested. His name was Andrew Fraser. He could barely speak above a whisper for his lungs were almost gone. But I can recall yet how after a few words of introduction, he said to me, young man, you're trying to preach Christ, are you not? What a great question. I replied, yes, I am. Well, he whispered, sit down a little and let us talk together about the word of God. He opened his well-worn Bible and until his strength was gone, simply, sweetly, and earnestly, he opened up truth after truth as he turned from one passage to another in a way that my own spirit had never entered into them before I realized that tears were running down my face and I asked, where did you get these things? Could you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you learn these things in some seminary or college? I shall never forget his answer. My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open up the Word to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges of the world. Ironside says it was not many weeks after this that Brother Fraser was absent from the body and present with the Lord, but the memory of that visit has always remained with me and is a most precious recollection. Brothers and sisters, that dear old Irish saint understood in the depths of his soul what drove Paul to this marvelous prayer at the end of Ephesians 1. God does not make himself personally and intimately known to those who presume to know him through their own diligent efforts through their own reading and study of His Word and studious examination of what others have said about His Word. Those things are necessary. They are exceedingly valuable in the hands of God. They are things that must be done. But brothers and sisters, those to whom God makes Himself personally and pervasively and transformingly known are those who come before Him in the emptiness of humility and of utter dependence. Profoundly aware of our own Complete inability to know the God whose ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. He makes Himself known to those whose absolute dependence on Him to reveal Himself drives us to our knees even in the very midst of our beholding Him and listening to Him. As we cry out to Him to cast out every worthless Thing that has occupied our minds and our hearts and to fill us up to all the beautiful, perfect fullness that is Him and Him alone. This isn't some kind of mystical higher knowledge. It is simply the personal, intimate knowledge of God that He freely and lovingly gives, but only, only to those who come to Him to give it. Beloved, prayer is dependence. Prayer is dependence. If it isn't, it isn't prayer. Heavenly Father, King of heaven and earth, God of glory, we confess that we cannot know You unless You make us know You. So we ask humbly, in absolute dependence, show Yourself to us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.